Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew to the 11th chapter, verses 1 through 6. Our text for this morning, Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6. Jesus well into his first year in his Galilean ministry. These events are recorded to tell us what is taking place. The big transition, of course, has gone, gone on. John the Baptist has completed his task, and Jesus Christ has fully come to the foreground to fulfill his Father's will. And so we read together at verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now we back up to Malachi, the last of the Old Testament books, to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where we have the prophecy concerning the coming of John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Malachi 3, reading verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then backing up a bit further to Isaiah chapter 35 also, this messianic prophecy concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and the great work that he would begin to do, bringing life from the dead. Isaiah 35, the first seven verses. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fear, fear, fearful hearted, be strong, do not be afraid. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With a recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land as springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass and with reeds and with rushes. 
So far from God's holy word. Congregation beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ in that uh, prophecy of Malachi chapter 3, there the prophet proclaims uh, the coming of the Lord. An absolutely amazing thing that God in heaven should come down to earth and to dwell with earthlings, sinful ones like us. Those words, so good, so necessary, behold, I send my messenger And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Yes, the words of the Lord came true. God indeed did come down. He was the one who came down to his people. But interestingly, he chose first to send a human messenger to prepare the way for his coming. And that messenger we know was John the Baptist. As Isaiah said, he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And John's ministry would begin in a wilderness, of course, already emblematic of the people themselves, living in a wasteland, spiritually speaking. But John's ministry began with many people coming to him, confessing their sins and being baptized by John in the Jordan River. John indeed had said, he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This was already the sum and the substance of that grand last prophet of the Old Testament era. The one of whom John said, speaking of our Lord, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. And as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ as he began that public ministry in the region of Galilee, preaching and teaching with might and authority and doing great and wonderful, mighty works, and Jesus, Jesus indeed was increasing in, in acclaim and, in, and in, uh, in the people's praises. John, Jesus was increasing and John was going the other way. He was decreasing. Even now he was in prison. And there was a question that was lingering in John's mind. And especially perhaps being laid low in that dungeon of Herod. A question came out of his mind. Are you the coming one? Or should we look for another? Our theme this morning. John had very faithfully completed his ministry. God had taken him off the field. And he was now suffering for his faith. Arrested by Herod the Idumean. Because of course he challenged Herod. With regard to his adultery. And that cost him his freedom. He was put in prison. Jesus was coming to the fore. He indeed was showing himself to be the coming one, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Savior, the Redeemer of the world. But are you the coming one? Are you the one that we should be looking for? Was John's 
question deep in his heart. And so we note in the first place, congregation, first the question, secondly the answer, and thirdly the admonition. First the question. We'll read at chapter 11 verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished commanding his disciples, the twelve, that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, scholars have debated whether or not there was unbelief, actually, in John's heart, and we would hardly think so. For remember the words he he spoke in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, where John declared, he said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No unbelief there, that's for sure. And when Jesus Christ was baptized at the Jordan River by John, John writes, I saw the Spirit of God descending upon him, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. No question about it. John indeed, uh, Jesus indeed was the coming one, the one for whom all Israel had looked for centuries and centuries, waiting, setting their hope upon this son of David who would become this one who would be the Messiah, the Savior, and the King of Israel. John had not only declared his coming, but he had seen his coming, he had heard of his coming. He'd seen something of the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. And yet there he was languishing in prison so that he sent two of his own disciples. Hey, John had disciples too, and he sent two of them to Jesus with a question. Are you the coming one or should we look for somebody else? Oh, John's own faith, we would say, was somewhat troubled. John had disciples as well, and they had been faithful students and followers of him, but now at this point they had to stop following John and join the ranks with Jesus' disciples and begin to follow him. But for the sake of his disciples too, the question was, were his disciples now to kind of shift gears and to follow this Lord Jesus Christ? There indeed had been rivalry off and on between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, and the point was, who now must we follow? Meanwhile, John knew very well that he'd come to prepare the way for the Christ. He had not come to prepare the way for himself. He even says early on in the Gospels, I am not the Christ. And so we read in Matthew 2 that John, having heard about the words and works of Jesus, wants to have this question affirmed as true once and for all in his own heart and for the sake of his disciples, are you the coming one? Or must we look for another? And brothers and sisters, isn't that the question for us as well? Isn't that the kind of question all believers need to have absolutely affirmed in terms of the right answer in their hearts? That Jesus Christ is indeed the one who was to come and indeed has come. 
And for the sake of unbelievers as well, they surely need to know this question answered correctly, that Jesus Christ is the coming one, and no other should they ever be waiting for or expecting to do something great or marvelous or lift them out of their poverty or all their misery. The question for you and me, is there one who might yet come who is a great one? Is there one who will take away all our tears, all the sorrows? Is there will be a one coming who will end all the wars that have ever been fought throughout the ages? Is there one who is able to conquer the power of death and sin once and for all and to take away not only some but all of our miseries, every last heartache, every last kind of depression that we experience? Is there one who is even able to get us out of our graves? Isn't that the grandest thing in the world to know that you will not stay in your graves forever? You won't. You will be raised up. That you indeed will gain access to heaven itself. Is there one who is coming that we need to look for to have that happen? Is there another who makes us right with God? Who else or what else might we be looking for? That's the question. Well, here comes the answer. We read it, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go tell John the things which you hear and you see. Hey, there's always evidence to the Christian faith. Tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And that was the case, congregation. Jesus had been very, very busy preaching and teaching throughout Galilee, and super, superhuman, mighty works, extraordinary works of mercy and power were happening at the hand and the mouth of Jesus himself as he was verifying his ministry and even more verifying that he was indeed not just another person, but he was the very Son of God sent from heaven. And to be sure, there were great expectations concerning this Messiah. What kind of a man would he be? What kind of a kingdom would he establish? What would he look like? What would his power and rule over Israel, what would it, what would, what would it be like? Oh, John had for sure prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in a rather very unusual kind of a way, he came preaching a baptism of repentance unto the remission of sins, we read in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. That already gives us a big clue. If John prepared the way for Jesus by preaching about sin and repentance, so much more we would think Jesus ought to do the same thing. But how is that the establishing of a kingdom? Earthly kingdoms aren't established that way, that's for sure. But brothers and sisters, we see Jesus' kingdom and rule and power would deal with sin. 
would deal with sin, to destroy its power, to take away its corruption, and take away all the consequent misery of sin. And so what John preached, guess what? Jesus preached the very same thing. But Jesus did much more. He did much more. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus dealt head-on congregation. He dealt head-on with the horrific consequences and the effects of sin. In love and with mercy, he began to push back the effects, the horrible miseries of sin by bringing healing wherever he went. Blind people were suddenly made to see. They weren't given a new pair of glasses and say, well, try these out. Hopefully your vision is better. Absolutely not. They suddenly, miraculously were made to see. And lepers were cleansed, not by some special ointment or new medication, but suddenly their, their, their filth and their, and, their, and their disease was cleaned and made whole. People who had been born deaf were made to hear suddenly. The lame were made to walk. Even the dead were raised up out of the grave by the power and the mercy of God. Oh, is Jesus the answer for all your misery? You perhaps know your own misery best of all. I can't look into your heart, but I'm sure there's lots of misery there too. It's in mine as well. But is Jesus the answer to that? Totally and completely. Well, he is congregation. There is no other. There is no other. For you see, all sickness... All disease, demon possession, being deaf, being blind, being dead, all of these things, every injury, every disease, every mental depression, every deformity, every birth defect that children are born with, is the direct consequence or the wages of sin, which is death. And that is what our Lord came to confront, to, to push back in a way, to, to clear the road for something far greater, far better, the coming of his Father's kingdom. He came to overcome, he came to remove, he came to restore people to perfect wholeness. And this is what you see the Gospels are full of to, to an overflowing. It's all there in the Gospels of the wonderful works of Jesus, of healing, of restoring, of rescuing people from the deadly consequences of their sinfulness. It was a telling sign that Jesus alone had dealt with the root problem of our misery, 
not misery itself, but the root problem, namely our sin. You see, and if he is able to deal with our sin forthrightly and completely, then he can handle the effects of sin too very much. Because that's only something very little and small compared to the root problem, which is our sin. But that he was taking on all the consequences was a demonstration he was the one who could take away the root problem, human sinfulness. And yet still the lingering question, are you the coming one or should we look for somebody else? Well, we need evidence, congregation, and we sure have it. The blind see and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Who has done such a thing? Who might yet do such things? Had the emperor of Rome, the mighty Caesar, been able to do anything like this? The one to whom the whole world looked to as their leader? Were there other physicians or teachers in the ancient world with such mighty healing power? If there is, let's check it out and find out who it might be. Are there magicians, are there therapists who could accomplish this? But coming to today, might we trust the very latest technology in AI? With what robotics can do these days, they can diagnose disease, they can program, bring a prognosis, they help so much in medicine apparently. I don't know hardly any of it, but perhaps there we ought to really take a hard look and maybe see that there is something to latch on to in AI, artificial intelligence. Oh no. But only Christ alone, the Christ of God. Who is he? It was Jesus of Nazareth, to be exact. Oh, to be sure, all the people who Jesus healed of their leprosy, demon possession, blindness, deafness, you name it, all of those whom Jesus raised from the dead, they did die again. They did become sick again. And it was a sickness that finally brought about their death, and they wound up in their graves. But yet, remember this, that Jesus Christ manifested such miraculous powers not for nothing, not simply to dazzle our, 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 our thinking, but to demonstrate that his was the power of God himself, that he indeed was God on earth, and that he manifested such power out of, out of a incalculable kind of, 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 of divine love like no one else ever could but only because he was God. Jesus Christ indeed fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy that was spoken some seven centuries earlier that the eyes of the blind shall be opened that the ears of the deaf would be unstopped that the lame would leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb would sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus Christ was the coming one congregation. 
the one whom Isaiah spoke of. Jesus Christ came to establish his Father's glorious kingdom of grace and power and healing and of saving sinners and bringing their renewal of life and hope and eternal joy, yes, even everlasting life. Now that's a kingdom unlike any other kingdom on the face of the earth. It's important to pay attention to Isaiah's words in chapter 35 there. When we look at the world as he looked at his world and the people of his day, he likened his environment to a wilderness, to a desert, to a wasteland because it was descriptive of the hearts and the destitute poverty of the people of God. But as he begins to speak about the coming of a glorious new kingdom that is to come, that kingdom is likened to the exact opposite of a wasteland. Again, reading in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, For the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of jackals, a wild dogs, where each lay there shall be grasses and reeds and rushes. There will be rivers and pools, Gardens, fabulous, wonderful, where there once was a desolate landscape and and nothing. These words describe, congregation, the incredibly wonderful power and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ as he begins to fulfill his Father's will to establish his Father's kingdom. Jesus' works here were omnipotent. They were almighty, they were joy-producing, they were life-giving, they were death-destroying works that our Lord Jesus Christ did to demonstrate He is the Messiah, that He is the one who has come to go so far as to renew the whole creation and deliver from the bondage of decay to which it now is yet subjected. We think of Paul's words in Romans 8. And surely then, congregation, we simply cannot look for another. Again, look at Isaiah's words. He says, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, eh, for God's people. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Pictures, word pictures, to have deeply imprinted upon our, on our psyche and within our hearts and minds concerning the work that the Lord Jesus Christ so gently, so humbly, so simply began to do. Suddenly doing miracles, which were, of course, human impossibilities. But Jesus went about his work. And as we, re- we read these words, they're intended for us to kind of dive into those scriptures and put ourselves right back in the first century and see Jesus and watch him and hang on every word he speaks and see the blind suddenly see and the deaf who live in absolute silence suddenly could hear. 
and the dead be raised up who were in their graves. Brothers and sisters, what a thing if we would have actually seen those miracles. But they happen just as much for us today and just as real for us today. Time never erases the truth. But there's something even greater here, congregation. The last words of verse 5. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. One of the most common descriptions of sinful children and of believers knowing their sin is that they are, are poor. Not rich, not mighty, but poor. They have nothing to offer to God except their own wretched, sinful, miserable, decaying, hell-bound situation. That's all we can say, well, this is what I got, Lord. This is what I am. We are the poor. We are the needy. The great and the mighty and the rich and the arrogant and the flamboyant in the world of that time, yes, they may have heard Jesus' words too, but they certainly were not listening. They were not interested. They were fine in and of themselves. They didn't need a Savior at all. But the poor, Jesus says, the poor, the poor in spirit, the humble, the penitent, have the gospel preached to them. And they believe it. Do you believe it? You may come to church twice every Sunday for 20 years, but do you believe it? Jesus' mighty signs and wonders on the one hand were one thing as they confirmed his deity and his gracious power to take away all his miseries, but it was his preaching, you see. That was something else. It was his preaching to the poor. Preaching is the source and the means for the power of life to enter the lives of his people, and to raise them from the dead, to save sinners, to save the poor. Paul will go on to say that faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. To be more specific, hearing the preaching of the holy gospel. Faith in Christ, hearing the gospel, brings, by God's grace, finally, everlasting life an everlasting happiness, an everlasting wholeness, an everlasting wellness of soul, the kind of thing no therapist can touch, the kind of thing no philosopher could ever be a match to, because none of them can bring you the forgiveness of your sins as the end to your misery. None of them would teach you that. None of them can speak to you about a righteousness that's not your own but of God. And none of them can cleanse you of your sins. None of them can make any peace between you and God. None of them could ever take you out of your misery, no matter how skilled, no matter how many doctor degrees they got behind their name. Well, congregation, you've heard the preaching for many years. 
For many years you've heard of the signs and the wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard these things. You've heard John's question. You've heard Jesus' answer. Now thirdly, hear Jesus' admonition. His admonition. Verse 6, And blessed is he who is not offended at me. The admonition, it's a call to our hearts, congregation, for each of us to truly know and to be challenged with and to be convicted of our sin because that is how grace begins to operate in our lives. That's where Jesus always started with as well. His preaching was known for the Jews being convicted of their sins. So much so that so many of them got so mad at Jesus and so disgusted with Jesus, they were out to destroy Jesus, but the point had been done. They were convicted of their sin and of his righteousness. And that is to be the same with us, to be convicted of our sins to bring us to our knees in humility and repentance. And especially so because we see all the evidence of the mighty, gracious, wonderful, loving works of Jesus to do what only God himself could done. And to see that display of his grace to forgive sinners and to heal them of all their miseries. But grounded in this fact that he has first come to save Sinners from the curse of the law, which puts us all in the bottom of hell, apart from grace. So please understand Jesus' words when he says, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Might you, perhaps, some of you, be a little bit offended with what Jesus all says about himself in the Gospels? Might you feel a little put out with the label that you are poor? You've got a lifetime of great achievements. You've made your name, so to speak, in this community. You know, you're still poor. You're still poor. You're still needing. You still need to hear the gospel preached each Lord's Day for the sake of your salvation. Or might you say, this is a bit too much. This is overkill because I'm, I'm really not so bad. Look at my name. Look at my, my ancestry. I got a lot going for myself. And you know, my sins, they ain't so bad either. I'm pretty good. And if there is a time when I have to deal with a God in heaven, well, I'll just trust my luck. There's something I can hang on to to get by. And meanwhile, I'll look for some other place or some other person to have the kind of wellness and wholeness or happiness. Maybe I'll check out another Messiah 
That's what Mohammed did in the 6th century AD. He presented himself as the last and the greatest prophet of God. Although the name of his God was Allah, not Jehovah. And how many millions and people haven't followed the latest Messiah, Mohammed. But Jesus admonishes us here, congregation, don't be offended because of me. You will be blessed if you take no offense at me. Well, congregation, the gospel is naturally very offensive to our own sinful, rebellious hearts. Read again in the gospels and see how quickly Jesus preaching roused up the hatred and the viciousness of God's own people against him. They were disgusted with the fact that he would claim to be the Messiah. They were disgusted with the kind of righteousness that was exhibited in him and through him. They couldn't stomach the man and they showed their ultimate rejection by crucifying him. They went so far as to say he is not going to be our Messiah, that's for sure. And the chief priests even said it for the whole, we have no king but Caesar, there you have it. But such people will also have to sleep in their own beds, the beds they make for themselves as they keep on trusting themselves and not repenting of their sin or their allegiance, they must be content to go headlong into everlasting hell and condemnation because that's the only other track you could possibly be on. But here, dear brothers and sisters, is our Lord Jesus Christ showing himself as he is, the bread of life. He said, I am the way and I am the truth. I am the life. There's no other way to the Father but through me. So please do not be offended at that man of Nazareth, the Son of God, because, because he made the blind to see, and he caused those who were deaf to hear. The lame got off their beds and instantly began to walk. Lepers were cleansed, leprosy. And the dead were raised up. And the greatest of all, the poor had the gospel preached to them. Our greatest resource our greatest treasure, our greatest hope. The proclamation of Jesus Christ. Here he simply proclaimed himself as your gracious Savior, your Redeemer, your Almighty God, and your everlasting King. He alone, congregation, for sure will deliver you out of all of your miseries. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Amen.